So we are in our series, Things That Jesus Never Said. Things Jesus Never Said. Uh, we've surmised that Jesus never said these two things. Love is love, and you have to live your truth. Those two phrases. Not only did he not say it, but he didn't even come close to it, that what he had to say regarding those areas were far from what those sayings represented. Now, as I say that, and I've said this in each of those messages, people who say these things are not our enemy. Let's please get that straight. We believe that all people are made in the image of God. They're deserving of respect. So they're, they're not an enemy. But those, that kind of thinking is, um, is contrary to a, a biblical worldview. So we're going to look at another saying today. And this one is that God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Well, many times we've heard the statement that happiness is a lot different than joy or contentment. Oswald Chambers in the late 1800s uh, one of the earliest Bible teachers who kind of made this distinction said that happiness is no standard for men and women because happiness depends on my being determinedly ignorant of God and his demands, end quote. And then others have said that, you know, happiness is, is temporary, it's circumstantial, that, that joy is more, you know, internal, uh, should be permanent and not related to the circumstances, but here's the thing. The Bible really doesn't make that distinction. It really doesn't make that distinction. In fact, it uses happiness and joy like they were synonymous. Much of this depends on what Bible translation you use. In fact, many translators, it doesn't change the overall meaning, but the Greek word, for instance, for happy, they, they'll insert blessed or blessed. Happiness is found 29 times in the King James Version. Now, we typically don't use the King James Version, but I'll give you some of the things that Jesus said. For instance, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Happy. Paul said, happy is he that condemneth not himself and that which he alloweth. And in the Old Testament we read, where there is no division, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now the fact is, is that much of our understanding about happiness has drawn a distinction between that and joy. And I've probably been uh, responsible for some of that. Uh, in fact, it would be fair that if much of our understanding of happiness is more of a modern version, then it would make sense that we make this distinction. Uh, what we could say is that there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion regarding what makes you happy. To put it succinctly, if we see joy and happiness as synonymous, we could probably see Jesus as tracking on both, but if we, um, if we see joy as something long-lasting, and happiness as something temporary and circumstantial, well, Jesus is not on that happy train. So it just depends on how you're defining happiness. 
of the actor Will Smith has spoken about the importance of self-belief, positivity. He suggests that happiness comes from finding your own path, believing in your abilities, maintaining a positive mindset, even in the face of challenges. And he believes that happiness comes from having a really good right hook as well. All right? um, the comedian Ellen DeGeneres uh, gives her secret to happiness as being true to yourself, embracing authenticity, finding joy in simple acts of kindness and humor. And then Lady Gaga believes that happiness comes from being authentic, embracing your uniqueness, and surrounding yourself with supportive people. But my favorite is from actor Alan Alda. He quipped, it isn't necessary to be rich and famous to be happy. It's only necessary to be rich. <laughs> wow. It's funny, though. It's funny. The most popular course at Yale was about finding happiness. It was first offered in the fall of 2017. It was titled Psychology and the Good Life. Nearly one-fourth of Yale undergraduates registered for this course. Lori Santos, the psychology professor who teaches the course, says that she tries to teach students how to lead a happier, more satisfying life. No wonder the course has caught on because at Yale they found more than half the undergraduates have sought mental health care from the university while enrolled. One of Santos' principal lessons is that the things that Yale undergraduates most associated with achieving happiness, like you know, good grades, a prestigious internship, a good paying job, do not increase happiness at all. Santos says, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery and getting a good grade, are totally wrong. Interesting. Another study at Harvard. Of course, you know if it's at Yale and Harvard, it's got to be true. At Harvard, on the topic, it boils down where they did a study that happiness comes from one thing, good relationships. Interesting. It says good relationships will make us healthier and happier, period. It says when you want to make one decision to ensure your own health and happiness, it should be to cultivate warm relationships. Well, I'd add, especially the relationship with God that ought to be at the top of the list. Jeremiah said, when speaking about how people will try to find their goals, happiness, fulfillment, and some things that don't work, he said, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, so they forgot God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Hmm. When happiness is our ultimate goal, then perhaps our greatest challenge will be when we become disillusioned or disappointed. Life may seem for you to be like a repository for loss and grief. And if you don't have a way to deal properly with accumulated hurt, you're going to find yourselves with an extended period of unhappiness or a lack of joy or dis. Content. 
David Brooks, who I find myself quoting often from the New York Times, said, we live in a cultural wash and talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than 1,000 books were released on Amazon on that subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't talk only about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. And then hear this. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Huh. Maybe we could say this, that suffering is a way in which we can trim the fat of our expectations for what makes us happy, right? The Apostle Paul wrote, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking or physical things, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the most prolific theologians who lived over 500 years ago said this, it is impossible for any created good to constitute man's happiness for happiness is that perfect good which entirely satisfies one's desire. Otherwise, it would not be the ultimate end if something yet remained to be desired. This is to be found not in any creature but in God alone because every creature has only participated goodness. Therefore, God alone can satisfy the will of man, according to the words of the psalmist, 102.5. Who alone satisfies your desires with good things? Therefore, God alone constitutes man's happiness, end quote. That's pretty good. So maybe a better question then, does Jesus want to make us happy? Maybe a better question is, what is it that actually makes us happy, joyful, Content. As many face illness, loss, anxieties, fears, trouble of all kinds, it's important for us to remember that God is still interested in our joy or happiness. You know, I think many of us have grown up with a type of Christianity that has said that the only thing that God desires is for us to fulfill our obligations, obedience, perseverance, faithfulness. Of course, he's interested in those things. But I think maybe we've done ourselves a disservice to separate that from joy, from the internal world of the heart. God does not separate obedience from our happiness in him. God wants our joy to be full, as the words of Jesus in John 15. So we know that the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives us great and lasting joy, even when we face affliction. We read by the Apostle Paul, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. They were joyful not because of how much they had, but because of how much they were sacrificing for others. That's time, treasure, talent, however you want to view it. The psalmist said, 
you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hmm. Listen, happiness, joy, contentment, it's more than positive thinking, although I think there's kind of a, a holy optimism or maybe even hope that we're to have. But it's more than that. It's a, it's a supernatural enablement that the Holy Spirit gives us. And it's to characterize the people of God. Now, listen, all of us get sad. All of us grieve. There's nothing wrong with that. There are good reasons to grieve. The question really is, is joy more a part of our life than, let's say, the sadness? I mean, when you go to a funeral, it's proper to grieve, but we grieve in a certain way, Paul tells us. We grieve different from the world because we're to grieve with hope. So what that means is when the grieving season is over, we can experience joy, and we're not, we're not tethered to the law so that it defines us constantly. If we have assumed that God owes us circumstances that are in our favor, we are going to be set up for discontent and disillusionment when things go awry. Or, if you're a part of some Christian subcultures, you will be guilted into understanding you didn't have enough faith, you didn't pray enough for your healing, you didn't do enough to do this or that that you should not have these things happen if you really trusted God. I really don't think that was the way of Jesus or the way of the Bible. Hmm. Other people have let us down, right? They've disappointed us. And we also think that God sometimes has let us down. And what I like about the Bible is that it does not shy away from these kinds of realities. We learn from the psalmist that he was overwhelmed by the treatment of others. And he felt like a lonely sparrow perched on a rooftop in Psalm 102. We see Elijah dejected, feeling like he was the only one who was taking it on the chin after confronting the Baal worshipers, and then he was being chased by Jezebel. And what's amazing about that story in 1 Kings is Elijah was a great prophet and a part of this kind of miraculous event in dealing with the Baal worshipers, God sending down fire from heaven. And he wins a dramatic showdown at Mount Carmel. Queen Jezebel is not pleased with Elijah for losing her Baal worshipers, and she threatens the life of Elijah. Now, you'd think that Elijah, Elijah the prophet, Elijah the great man of God, Elijah the one who just had this miracle happen, he'd be filled with faith and have the strength and the confidence to face the threat of one queen. But we read in 1 Kings 19.3, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. And he asked that he might die. <laughs> Saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. 
This did not happen according to my script. Just end it now. Apparently, Elijah had an expectation that God would not throw something like Jezebel in his life right after these great exploits. Now, we're not told exactly what Elijah expected, but I think it's safe to assume by the context that Jezebel threatening his life was not in the script. Disappointment with God, disappointment with others can simmer at the bottom of our hearts. It is, it is the end of a lot of marriages, a lot of families. Accumulated hurt. And we've chosen to hold on to it. I know. I've done the same thing. And I've got a sneaky suspicion all of us are familiar with this. Here's what happens. When you hold disappointment or a block goal like that, what happens is that right next to that disappointment, right next to that loss that it accumulates, anger, bitterness. Accumulated disappointment and bitterness kind of seeps through like a, an infected wound. It comes through. Maybe it's disappointment that my spouse hasn't changed yet like I wanted her or him to do. Disappointment that I'm still sick. Disappointment that this miracle hasn't come through for me. Disappointment that these certain people have have hurt me. We, we, we expect God to come through in a more dramatic way, and he, and he hasn't. What God communicates to Elijah at this point is, I think, something, well, I think we could call it profound. And let's take a look at it. In 1 Kings 19, starting with verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and even I, only I, am left, 
I love this. It's only me. It's, it's just me that feels this, all right? And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint his zeal to be king over Syria. The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. The Lord did not show up in a dramatic way. He didn't show up with guns blazing to deliver like he just did on Mount Carmel. You did it for them, do it for me now. And often many of us struggle that the Lord didn't show up like we expected. And he came in a whisper. And he spoke to me. And I was directed. What can we hold on to in the midst of the disappointment and loss? What can we hold on to that can swell inside of us and give us joy? True happiness. We can find our answer in the presence of God. The knowledge of the love of God. The author of Hebrews said, faith. Faith is what? He said that it's the knowledge that God is there. And that's all I need. And I know because of his person, he loves me. I know that. And sometimes that's all we get. The check didn't come in the mail. Unfortunately, the doctor said the test is positive. That loved one did leave. And it hurts and it's painful, and we think we just got the short end of the stick. Think, how can God be there in that? But he is, and that's the essence of faith, that he's there. No matter the circumstance, God is present in all situations. That is real, constant, true. That is what we can expect. That is what will never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's by our side, available for communion at any juncture. <laughs> I said this in the first service, and it strikes me that when we talk this way, that you know, we often see struggles as the enemy. I was talking with somebody yesterday at a wedding rehearsal. Uh, they've been married about a quarter of the time that Janet and I have been married. And we were saying, actually, you know, we've had a couple seasons where we just weren't quite sure we'd make it. Very, very difficult. But finally, Janet repented of her sin, and we were able to move on. You know that it's always, 
even if, you know, even if you think one person is guilty, there's always something the other spouse can do, right? So um, we deal with our flesh and our arrogance. That, that's, that's marriage. But my point was that we had these difficulties. And what happens is that over the years, because you've, you've weathered that, and sometimes you're, you're just holding on, it, it, it creates this value for the relationship. It's like, man, look at what we've done together. I would never want to go through it again. But man, it causes me to value her so much more greatly that she has stuck with me, right? Because grace touches that area, love touches that area, and then it's, it dawned on me, wait a minute, that's church. That's church. But see, what happens is we think, just like people in marriage, you think it's always going to have to be this romance that's like, huh, newsflash, Okay? As soon as the honeymoon is over, baby, it's, the real job comes, right? But church is often the same way. We expect, hey, come on Sunday morning, you know, raise our hands, music, hear a rousing message or a boring message, and we are going to think that's, you know, indicative of the Christian life, and it's not. I want it to be a reflection of the Christian life. But it, 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 it's just a microcosm of things. But instead, it's the relationships. It's the community that we have with one another. And not just the breaking of bread, but it's the hurts. It's the disappointments with one another. And when we weather that, the value of the relationships increase. Instead, what happens is, wait a minute. You didn't meet my expectation. I didn't expect to get criticism. I didn't expect to get hurt. So we're just going to have to find another church. Oh, wait a minute. This is the 12th church we've been to in our lifetime? We're all guilty. Let's just admit it. Okay? We are all guilty. But the beauty is the endurance, the, the, the strength of the relationships over years, over generations. I mean, I, I'm doing a wedding today for a guy who was ring bearer at my daughter's wedding, and his dad was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. I know, I don't look like I'm 85, but... But I was thinking, it's, it's these relationships over generations that, has it been perfect? Of course not. But the value raises, and it's like, I am so thankful for that. Now, I love our Sunday morning experience, but I love even more you and the relationships, and the community. And so when I adjust my expectations, I don't, I'm not surprised by anything. I expect to be hurt. So it's a, good to know that, Kevin, because i got a list of things I want to talk to you about. Right? Trust me, I probably heard it. Paul said, in 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of 
Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God uses the hardships, the the persecutions, the insults as a way to show us he writes the script. He is all we need. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children are the company of earthly friends, scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Isn't that great? Joy and happiness springs from knowing we are content in Christ. Deep in our hearts. Paul said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Joy and contentment is not the absence of problems. It's not when we get what we want. It doesn't mean I'm passively going through life either when I'm content. Contentment is not believing that, you know, God's going to make my life easier. Contentment is the ability to allow Christ to seize every moment and to depend on him in the light of his presence and his promises to us. And then happiness and joy follow that contentment in Christ. So instead of saying, God wants me happy, I would say, God wants me content in Christ. Happiness might follow, but I'm not worried about that because I've got everything I need in Christ. I read a lovely story of an orphan from Haiti who was in her first day sitting at her adopted parents' home in Arizona. And she was greatly bothered when they sat down for the meal because the table was full of food. And she was amazed at how quick the food left the table. And the mother proceeded wisely. She knew what this child was perceiving. She showed her the pantry, the refrigerator, and the freezer, and she assured her that there would be food for tomorrow. The little girl was worried that all the food was on the table, and there wouldn't be anything left for tomorrow. My friends, the food for our soul is in abundant supply, and our Savior can fill it at any time and in any circumstance. Can joy be had in suffering? Can joy be experienced when human relationships fail? Can joy and happiness be ours when sick or poor or during the loss of a job? I think the Apostle Paul helps to answer these questions. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, this is one of the most misapplied verses in all the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not telling us that we can leap tall buildings at a single bound. What he's saying is, I can suffer through Christ. I can be sick through Christ. I can go through a relational hurt through Christ. All of life's challenges are to be met with my confidence in the protection and supply of Christ. That we can expect, and he will never disappoint in that category. Our joy and happiness will be proportionate to our willingness to genuinely receive Christ as our all in all. Jesus clarified this for a man who wanted to follow Jesus on his own terms. He wanted to follow Christ when he was ready and when he was comfortable to do it. And in Luke 9, Jesus engages a man who wanted to wait until he could bury his father. Now, Jesus has no problems with funerals or family obligations, but he was making clear here that following him is not to be in competition with other pursuits. Jesus demands top billing. We read, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So there'll be family members who are spiritually dead. Let them bury the dead physical people. But following Christ demands we accurately assess the commitment and be willing to follow through. It's likely that this man's father was ready to die. And he said, well, wait, wait, I'll follow you when I bury my dad. I'll follow you when you come through for me here. I'll follow you when, no matter what you say, after that, it's the wrong answer. We follow him now. There is nothing to be in the way of giving our all in all to Christ. There is never a good reason for him not to have top billing. No earthly obligation is more important. He's not against fulfilling obligations, but the primary allegiance is him. In fact, I have found that I want to be a good steward of my obligations because I follow Christ. Because I don't want people thinking that, what? You know, that I can't keep my obligations. Listen, anything can be an idol, including family, right? But our obedience to Christ is superior to all other responsibilities. So there is a, you could say, a theological and a real-life urgency to our confidence in Christ. That means there's no good reason that keeps us from complete allegiance and trust in Christ right now. One pastor, Jim Dennison, tells a story that when he was a missionary in East Malaysia, 
During one church service, while on the mission field, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ, and she wanted to be baptized. And during the service, Dennison noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of the church building, and he asked another person about it. And what Dennison found out was that it belonged to the little girl being baptized. Why? Because her father said, if you get baptized as a Christian, I will disown you. I never want to see you again. You're not welcome here. So she brought her luggage. She got it. Listen, our ultimate goal is not happiness. Our goal is in everything, living in the confidence and supply of Christ. Joy and happiness will likely follow. Let's pray.